What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and I have two special guests on this week. And we're going to be answering all of the listener questions that you guys have been emailing or calling into us. We're really excited to dig into this. There's a lot of content here, so I'm going to be real quick. Make sure you guys have our disclaimer that this is not specific insurance advice. This is not financial planning advice or tax advice. This is for educational purposes only. You would need to be working with someone specifically that knows your situation before you take any action on any of this amazing content that's coming up. But like I said, there's a ton of good stuff here. So we're going to jump in right away and hang out with Larry Keller from Physician Financial Services and Michael Relvis from MR Insurance. So let's go hang out and see how the guys are doing. Ryan, glad to be back. Uh, I feel like we're already household buddies and ready to answer some questions as far as listeners go. Hey, Ryan. I'm glad to be spending some time with you this afternoon. Yeah, it's going to be super cool, guys. Even though you're on the, the opposite ends of the, the country, I do feel like you guys are now residents on the Financial Residency Podcast. So you both have been on this month talking all about insurance and dropping knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb. So it's going to be super neat. Like I said, we have a bunch of questions that people have called in. So let's hit those one at a time. Larry, this is our first call-in question. I'm an active duty physician. Will any traditional insurance company offer coverage to me? That is a great question. And you will find that we know as far as carriers that have true own occupation coverage for physicians, and it can vary by state, but we've got Berkshire Life, which is a guardian company. We've got Mass Mutual, Standard Insurance Company, Principal, Emeritus, and Ohio National. Of those six companies, one of them, which happens to be Mass Mutual, does provide coverage for active duty military physicians. In fact, they recently introduced a discount for active duty military physicians, which is permanent. So even after you separate from service, that discount will apply not only to what you started with, but anything that you ever add to your policy. The way that they do it is we know that physicians are paid from different sources. They have their base pay, then they have their save pay or really specialty pay. And if they're not a resident or a fellow, they might actually be doing moonlighting. So Mass Mutual has a formula where we offset for the disability benefits associated with the base pay only. We then go to our issue and participation limit, which is really just an income replacement chart take out the offset related to the disability benefits associated with the base pay, and that's how much we're willing to insure someone for. Ideally, their policy will also have an increase option that allows them to buy additional coverage in the future, regardless of their health, as their income rises, or subsequently when they separate from military, they are now discharged and they go into the civilian world like their physician counterparts elsewhere. That's awesome. We have a lot of Navy physicians now, thanks to Taylor being part of the Navy as a civilian, but lots of Navy physicians listening. So hopefully that's helpful because I do get that question coming in from some of our friends for that. So awesome work here. Michael, the next question that we have coming up. Will these policies truly cover me if I'm unable to work in my medical specialty? Like Larry had mentioned, there are certain companies out there right now that are offering what's called true and occupation policies that yes, they will. But that's a really interesting question because we get this a lot and it almost seems as if people are expecting a policy to be issued that specifically says you're considered totally disabled if you can't work as an emergency medicine physician or as an anesthesiologist or whatever your specialty is. And, and really the wording of the contracts are much broader than that. 
the policy you buy is not going to say that. Instead, it's going to define total disability, and then it's going to define occupation. And that's what makes it specific to your occupational duties and your medical specialty. So in an actual disability insurance policy, what you'll find is the definition of total disability should read in a true ONOC policy that total disability or totally disabled means because of an injury or a sickness that you're unable to perform the material and substantial duties of your occupation. Now, a little further on, right around where that definition is found, it will also define occupation as the occupation or occupations, if there's more than one, that you were performing at the time of claim in the 12 months leading up to that. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing because it's actually worded broadly enough where it's still specific to your occupational duties. But if you change roles or if you change duties throughout your career, if you take on a a second career or a side gig, you don't have to buy a new policy. The policy will always go with you in wherever your career takes you. Now, there's a flip side to that, which is if you're a surgeon and you buy a policy as a surgeon, that policy is intended to cover you as a surgeon, right? Based on those material duties. If 10 years into your career, you take on a directorship role, or let's just say that you start a side gig and are actually more profitable doing that, that's what you end up doing. That policy is no longer covering you as a surgeon. It is covering you based on those occupational duties you're performing at the time of claim. So Yes, it does cover you in your medical specialty if you buy the right policy, of course, but it's important to recognize that these policies cover your medical specialty because they cover your occupational duties, and it's not just necessarily going to say your medical specialty specifically in the contract. Yeah, and there's a big difference, and I won't go too much into it because I've talked about it on the show quite a bit, but there's a difference between true own OCK and the medical own OCK. That's the Northwestern, right? Yes. Yeah. There's a big difference between the true ONOC and the medical ONOC. It's a marketing difference, even that I get sometimes confused on the two as you're talking through them. But they are not the same thing. Do your due diligence. You really want to go with a a true ONOC on your policy. Larry, the next question comes in around group insurance. And I see this quite frequently with a lot of our clients. So I'm interested to hear your opinion on this one. So my group insurance sucks and I'm willing to pay to have better coverage like as much as possible. But how do I do this? Okay. I I would not say group insurance sucks. Let's just say their person's group insurance is potentially limited in some areas compared to an individual disability insurance policy. But at the end of the day, even if someone is provided with long-term disability insurance from their employer and they do not love the terms associated with that for any number of reasons, it really is not quite as simple as I'm willing to spend a lot more money I'd like to ignore my group insurance policy and buy as much individual coverage as I can, there's a limit. And in the world of insurance, we really do not look to incentivize someone to make more money disabled where they're no longer working than if they continued to work. So as a result of this, we're going to have an income replacement ratio. And if you have group insurance as well as individual insurance, it's likely going to end up somewhere between 70 and 80% of your income being replaced. If you have traditional group insurance and it's being provided to you and it's not a voluntary benefit and the income that is being paid for in terms of that policy is not being added to your income, so it really is a quote unquote free benefit that portion that you receive from your group insurance is going to be a taxable benefit. To counteract the taxes on the individual disability insurance side, we're going to discount. It's going to be a 
flat percentage. Usually it's a 30% discount to replicate your income tax bracket, but it's certainly by no means accurate for everybody, but it is a blanket percentage that we use. So we're going to ensure all in somewhere between that 70 and 80% income replacement range. Now, there are some situations where you can actually technically over-insure yourself and legally collect under both of these policies as long as you meet the definition within each of them. So this is what's known as new in practice or beginning professional or starting professional limits. So for residents and fellows, they can typically purchase anywhere from $5,000 a month to as much as $7,500 a month, depending upon their specialty or where they are in terms of their training. By the same token, if you are a new in-practice physician, typically defined as somewhere in the last six months of training, up to the first two years of practicing, depending upon the company. And if we figure out that you're eligible for less individual insurance than what the group insurance would normally allow for relative to your income, you actually would buy that amount. If we find out that you're eligible for more than the new in-practice limits, and you desire to purchase that larger amount, you can do that as well. So the short answer is you cannot disregard your group disability insurance entirely. We will take that into consideration. We will look at your income. We will look at these group benefits short of those new in practice limits that the individual insurance companies make available, which do vary in some cases based on specialty, other companies based on specific insurance company. Yeah, it's a good thorough explanation on all of that. Sometimes when we look and we're doing the analysis for some of our clients, the group coverage is not that great. And you are making good money, but you can't be worth more disabled than you are working. So I can see the disincentive there and the incentive for the insurance company to not do that. Now, Michael, I'm going to throw you a tough one because this one came in and I was like, oh, that's you're going to get the short stick here, buddy. But uh, here's the question. This is a tough one. I am not a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident. I'm here on a visa. If I become disabled while here in the U.S., causing me to lose my visa and forced to return to my country of citizenship, would I still receive my benefits on my policy? I appreciate you giving me the difficult one, Ryan. You're right. The disclosure here is that every state is different. Every company is different. And it really depends on your personal circumstances, right? So for one, you have to look at what the base policies will limit or exclude. For example, there are some companies that in the actual base contract will automatically limit the amount of time you can spend outside of the country, whether you're a U.S. citizen or not. It could limit it to 12 months over the life of the policy. It could limit it to 12 months over the life of the policy unless you live in the United States for six months a year. Or there are some policies that actually don't have an embedded limitation within the actual contract. Unfortunately, those companies that don't have the limitation automatically there will add an exclusion rider. So to take this to the next level of sort of evaluation is to see what those exclusions actually say. Some of them will basically limit the time frame that you can be out of the country to 12 months or something like that, making it very comparable to those other plans that automatically include those limitations. But simply put, there is actually one company where in certain states, there's about 42 of them, in these 42 states, there is an opportunity where a foreign national Someone here on a work or study visa, an H-1B, J-1, can actually collect benefits while outside of the U.S. as long as the 
claim was initiated while in the U.S. or while on incidental travel. So basically vacation. If you're out of the country for three months and the disability happens while you're abroad, that is excluded. That won't be covered. But if you decide to take the family wherever to Europe for, for two weeks and you have plans to return, and this is clearly an incidental travel, if the disability occurs even while abroad, it would actually be covered. So to summarize and sort of make this simple, yes, there are ways where you can actually get a policy with quality coverage that offers quality coverage and will provide a benefit if you become disabled while in the United States or while out of the United States on incidental travel. And there's no limitation on how long you are outside of the country. Now, th there's one additional caveat I'll throw in there. Most of these policies, actually all of them, as part of the ongoing servicing of a claim, they require that you are under the care of a physician unless they agree to waive it, right? Something that's a presumptive disability, the insurance company might actually waive that because there's no benefit. If you are a surgeon and you lost use of two hands, you're never going to operate again. But if it's not a presumptive disability, there is this ongoing review. They want to make sure that the claim is still justified. So there is that little detail where if the medical records aren't strong enough to support it, or if they're not clear enough, or perhaps if the care is unconventional, there is some room for the insurance company to be picky. But other than that, yes, there is a way for that to happen. But again, in limited states. I appreciate you going into a lot of detail on that because there's one, not a lot of information on that. And it's hard to decipher how this all works when you're not a you know a U.S. citizen. Really good insights there. I know lots of listeners that's going to benefit. And that was a really great question. All right, Larry, let's go back to you here. This is another one about adding more coverage if you can. So here, let's jump into this question. Is it beneficial to have more than one policy? I'm looking for coverage and I was wondering if it's beneficial to stack policies. It really depends upon the medical specialty. I'll look at two areas. So the first one is we have someone that's never purchased before. They're a resident or a fellow. They might be new in practice. Maybe they have some group insurance. Maybe they don't. At the end of the day, it's really going to come down to what is that particular person's earning potential, usually dictated by their medical specialty. So I typically recommend multiple policies. So in this case, two different policies from two different companies with increased options on both of them to allow this individual to get to a higher level of coverage than any one company might normally allow as their income rises. A great example, this might be a plastic surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, even a general surgeon or specialty within ophthalmology or dermatology. Now, what you will find is certain medical specialties it just does not make sense. So if I'm a primary care physician, I'm a pediatrician, or I'm an internal medicine physician, certainly the earning potential is good. But I would say unless the earning potential is going to exceed 575000 probably not any real reason to look to make things more complicated, and I would stick with one policy. Now, if we've got someone that's a little bit older, maybe they bought some coverage when they were in training, they've used their increase options on that, They've got a level of coverage that's just not adequate for their needs today. They've exhausted their increase options, and now they're looking to figure out, well, what to do. They would likely keep the policy that they have, and they would look to layer in a second policy, likely with a second company, but doesn't necessarily have to be, with an increase option on there to allow for continued future use 
as their income rises. So at the end of the day, I would say a dual policy strategy is very viable in certain medical specialties where the earning potential is very high. It's absolutely warranted. And at the end of the day, even someone that's a resident buying two policies from two different companies, the initial benefit amount is going to be the same, whether they buy it from one policy or they're adding two policies to get to that level. So the cost is very going to be is going to be very comparable. So at the end of the day, if my cost is going to be about the same, but I've got a lot more upside potential to protect my rising income and my specialty warrants that there's really no reason not to have two policies. Now, for females, let's just say that a female physician has the ability to purchase their policy with a gender neutral or a unisex rate structure. And we've spoken about this before on the show, and we know that this can generate a savings for a female physician of somewhere between 30 and 50%, depending upon their age and their state of residence. Well, even if they have the income potential to warrant two policies, Unless they know that they're really going to need it and they plan to earn that income and continue to work on a full-time basis, they might not want to go down the path of two policies because they might have one that's got a gender neutral or a unisex rate and one that doesn't have a gender neutral or a unisex rate. So everyone's situation there is a little different. And of course, that female physician would have to determine in their own mind, is it justified to have one policy that's unisex and one that's not? Or do I just take maximum advantage of the unisex rate policy if available? And then once I max it out, if I feel I need more, go back to the marketplace at that time. Yeah, that was a great question because we, I think, had just worked through this exact scenario with someone that was working at Kaiser. I remember working and, and doing multiple policies. So a uh, killer question that was called in. So. Michael, one of the things that we see a lot with our clients is that either they have policies that are decent, or let's just say they could be improved upon. So this next question, I actually really enjoyed and wanted to make sure that we got on the show for that reason. So let's hear it. I'm considering replacing my current policy. How do I know if it's the right decision? That is actually a good question. And the answer has a a few different areas. So for one, Anytime you replace a policy, you really need to make sure that you're comparing it fairly with the new policies available, right? I mean, there are some downsides. You're going through the whole application process again. There may be exclusions added that weren't originally included on the original policy. So you want to make sure that sort of starting from scratch, you are comparing comparable policies. We've seen some pretty awful recommendations in the past. I've seen people recommend replacement when the first policy has all the riders that the person should have, and the new policy being recommended doesn't have any of them. And it's being presented as if it's going to provide some savings, some premium savings. Of course, no kidding, it's going to provide premium savings. It, it doesn't include half the, the riders that the original policy did. For one, you can always go back to the original insurance company and actually adjust the policy. So if all we're trying to do is reduce the cost, you don't have to apply for a new policy. You can likely just go back, remove the cost of living adjustment rider or whatever remaining FIO balance there is. You can make those adjustments. Very first thing we need to do is make sure that you're comparing apples to apples, looking at it fairly. Second thing we need to do is obviously really look at what you have and see whether there's actually room for improvement in terms of the contract language or if you're just looking to save money. If you're 10 years older than you were then, when you first bought that first policy, chances are you're not going to reduce the cost. Disability insurance goes up in in pricing pretty significantly. 
probably three to 5% with every year that we age. So 10 years later, it's going to be pretty hard unless you're a female who bought a gender specific priced policy initially, you're now eligible for unisex pricing. There's just really not going to be that much opportunity. But we actually do get a, a fair amount of, of emails and phone calls on this where someone perhaps buys a policy thinking that they're getting one thing, not really having done much research, not really knowing too much about it. And then years later, they take the time to learn more about disability insurance, the provisions they should be looking for, the definitions of disability, the different riders, even the pricing schedule, whether you have a level premium or a graded premium schedule, and all of a sudden realize that they have something different than what they thought they, they had. Maybe it seems like an own occupation definition, but with a variation that is going to penalize you if you're motivated and resourceful enough to, to go out and work in a different occupation if you're disabled from your medical specialty. And, and that's where I think replacement really does come into play a little bit more. It, it makes sense. If you're spending the same amount of money or a little bit more and getting a, a significantly improved policy, yes, replacement does make sense. But you still have to look at all these other variables. The final variable, I would say, is the exclusion language that's included in these policies. So when you're buying a contract, a policy at a young age, you're still in, in great health. Hopefully you got that policy without any exclusions. If it's now five years later or 10 years later, something might have changed. And that needs to be considered in your evaluation. Even if you're improving the, the bottom line language of the policy, going from a non-true own occupation policy to an actually true own occupation policy, if you're now stuck with a lumbosacral spine exclusion or a C-spine exclusion or whatever it might be, a hand exclusion, and that part of your body is really important to you, you have to outweigh that and say, is it really worth me taking on this risk that I don't have currently? So the, the answer is not the same for everybody. Insurance is basically like a gamble, right? It's just evaluating what you want to protect most and what you're willing to pay for. But that's how people should be looking at this. So between you guys, between us, it's really not that difficult to look at a person's existing coverage, reference some of the newer options available, and just help relay the message. It's really a, a personal decision. Yeah, those are really good points. Uh, the only piece I would maybe add to it a little bit is just from the advisor perspective is the conflicts of interest. So if you're working with an advisor that is not fee only and they are fee based and they are recommending that uh, you, you start a new relationship and that they're trying to recommend to replace your current policy, they have a massive conflict of interest. One, you've, I've talked many times on the show about choosing a fee-only planner um, and not someone that is also going to be selling you products on top of that. But just understanding that there are conflicts. So if you go to an insurance agent and they you say, hey, should I replace this? Uh, if they say no, they don't make any money. If they say yes, they make money. Just understanding who you're talking to. It's like going to a real estate agent. Should I buy this house? Yes, because I will make money. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing. You just need to realize the source you're getting the information, that they're a trusted source, that they've done this a lot, that they have the experience, that they're going to give you the right information. And that if it is potentially there is a conflict of interest, that you at least understand that it exists. So I want to switch up the, and we've got basically the six questions that we just answered on disability. I think we've got time for a couple more. And I wanted to get two questions on term insurance because I know it's important and we've had questions on that. Larry, I'm going to turn to you first here for this first term insurance question. On the podcast, I've heard about laddering coverage. Is there a drawback to that strategy? What are the pros and cons? 
Okay, so for those that are unaware of, laddering is basically buying, in some cases, multiple policies with a guaranteed level premium or a fixed premium rate for different durations of time. So let's just say my goal was to purchase $3 million of term insurance. And I knew if I did my financial planning and things were moving along in line with my plans, my need for insurance is actually going to go down. I'm going to save for retirement. I'm going to pay down my debt. I'm going to save for my kid's college education. And my savings rate is going to be high. So let's say I decided that I wanted to buy $3 million of coverage. The first way I might go about this is buying $3 million of 30-year level term. And there are longer term durations out there now, but I'm going to say a 30-year level term. And we know once I have this, my premium rate is fixed. And I know for the next 30 years, that premium rate is guaranteed not to change. So the positive is I've gone out pretty long as far as my coverage is going to last. If I'm 35 years old and I'm buying a 30-year level term for $3 million, I'm going to have that full $3 million potentially until my age of 65. So I know what I'm paying. I'm paying upfront for these long-term guarantees. And if things go well, I might not need the coverage for that entire duration. So the negative to that is I'm paying more money upfront for these long-term guarantees that I might not necessarily need. Here's the positive side. Even though I might be paying upfront a higher amount, long-term, as I'm seeing my needs change and my need for a larger amount of death benefit declining, I actually can reduce the amount of death benefit on that policy in increments when I feel are ready to change. So it could be five years in, it could be 10 years in, I can do this multiple times. And because I've been approved for the policy with this long duration, and now I'm taking the insurance company off the hook, so less risk to them, I don't have to answer medical questions. I don't have to do an exam, blood test, urine test. When they make this change, it's going to be as if I bought the smaller amount of coverage at the time of the original purchase on a going forward basis. So a lot of times people will say to me, Larry, this is great. I can reduce the death benefit. But if I'm 15 years older, aren't they going to charge me the premium rate based on me being 15 years older? And the answer is no. There would be no incentive for you to reduce your coverage at that point. They're going to reduce it going forward based on what your age was at the time of the original purchase. Now, if you happen to have multiple policies, you could actually drop one or more of those policies. So your second option might be, you know what, I do need $3 million, but from my financial planner and looking at my individual needs and goals, I'm going to do it with three different policies. I'm going to do a million for 10 years. I'm going to do a million dollars for 20 years. And I'm going to do a million dollars for 30 years. And if something happens to me and I pass away in the first 10, everything's going to pay. It's going to be exactly the same $3 million death benefit as if I bought one policy for $3 million for 30 years. If I make it 10 years, the first million is going to drop off. Now, not only is the death benefit going to drop off, but also the premium associated with that first million dollars is going to drop off. So now I'm going to have a reduced death benefit, but I'm also going to have a reduced premium. And because I'm buying shorter duration guaranteed level premium term, my initial premium outlay is going to be less expensive. If I now make it another 10 years, that next million is going to drop off. So now I'm down to 1 million for the last 10 years. 
So laddering, I think, is an excellent strategy. I think more and more these days, people are very well informed. People are working with fee-only financial advisors. They're reading financial blogs. They're much more financially educated. And as long as they understand the risk associated with buying shorter duration policies, because what is our drawback? Our drawback is I bought a million of 10, a million of 20, and a million of 30. I refinanced my mortgage. I had another child. I sold my house and bought a bigger house with a bigger mortgage. And I guessed wrong. This is the equivalent of I need coverage for more than 10 years. My first piece is going to drop off. I now need to go out and buy more coverage. But I'm older. My health might have changed. So any savings I bought up front with these longer duration policies, or take that back, any savings I might have by purchasing shorter duration policies, and that shorter duration policy is now going to expire, it's the equivalent of being in the barber's chair. You told the individual, leave it long. If I want to make you go shorter, I'll let you know. He gave you a buzz cut. You're not going to jump out of the chair and try to glue it back on your head. So that is the risk that you run. So the more conservative person is likely going to go with the longer duration term. And in their mind, their goal is to reduce the death benefit at different points in time. The person that's a little bit more of a risk taker, or they're much more sure of their plans, they're likely going to go with the laddering approach. Hopefully they'll go out long enough where it's not going to be an issue. In my experience, I've had terrible experience with 10-year term. You blink your eyes, it's over. If you're a guy, I won't speak to any of the females, but if you're a guy, by that point, you have less hair, you've got more weight, you're probably on a blood pressure medication, you're probably on some kind of a cholesterol-lowering medication, and there's a very good chance you're just not in the same shape that you were originally to qualify for that underwriting classification that you got when you were younger and healthier. I'm going to try not to take offense to anything you just said in the last few minutes, because I feel like the buzz cut, the gluing the hair back on, the overweight and the cholesterol or blood pressure, you might get me on blood pressure medicine after the, all those comments were directed at me, but I won't take offense. Taylor's over here going, I told you, you got to lose more weight. Uh, that, was, that was a really good explanation. We've talked a ton about laddering and cost savings. And if you're the type of person that's not going to take control of your finances and you're going to be an ostrich and shove your head in the sand, like it, laddering might not make sense because you might not have saved enough or invested enough to get there. But nine, 99 out of 100, I feel like if you're listening to the podcast and you're trying to improve your financial circumstances and you're increasing your financial acumen, laddering is a great re, uh, way to do that. Now, no one likes to necessarily pay for insurance because everyone, and I think it's just human nature, is I know one in four go out on disability. I'm going to be three, one of those three. So you're buying this coverage and you're hoping you never need it or never use it. And so you maybe want to have the cheaper one. And so this last question I wanted to bring in addresses that and I'm going to toss it over to Michael here. So let's, let's hit up this last question. I've decided how much coverage I need and how long I need it for. Shouldn't I now just buy it from the cheapest company? There are some cases, Ryan, where it's that simple, right? You're just an absolute superstar in perfect health on all accounts, no tobacco use, family history is clean, driving record is clean. Everything is perfect. No, you're talking about me. This is <laughs> I had to boost your confidence from Larry's spiel. himself. <laughs> so yes, if, if you're in absolute perfect health, there's not one red flag whatsoever. 
in theory, that should work. And you should qualify for the best rate class. There really shouldn't be anything from an underwriting standpoint that, that gets in your way. It might still be worth considering customer service. Not that means all too, too much with term insurance, but I'll tell you from experience, at least, there are definitely some companies that are less favorable to work with than others. As an insurance broker, I have my own life insurance with a certain company that really I'm finding is just awful in their customer service. I won't mention the name, but that can happen. So is it worth an extra five bucks a year, 10 bucks a year to go with a more reputable company? Possibly. But in theory, it should work if there's absolutely no red flags. What we find, though, is there often are red flags. And sometimes they're red flags that people aren't actually thinking about or expecting. Sometimes they're things that people are expecting. So I'll give you an example. Somebody that I, I spoke with earlier today, actually, there was some nicotine and, and tobacco use history. This person had used nicotine products within the last 24 months, but not within the last 12 months. We were basically in a one to two year window. And for the most part, most insurance companies are going to give that person what's called a standard plus category or a super standard category. To keep it simple, the third of four sort of standard categories, the third best. Now, some companies after one year more, so once he's reached 24 months of being tobacco and nicotine free, he can actually go to a preferred category. And that's worth considering because today there might be a company that's cheaper, but a year from now, when we can actually go in and, and adjust that risk category and reduce the cost, it's worth maybe spending an extra 20 or $30 today to save three or $400 or $500 next year or starting next year. I guess the easiest way to explain this is applying for life insurance and selecting the company is like a puzzle. And there are certain criteria that you have to go through. Things like I mentioned earlier, family history, tobacco use, driving record, a person's build, so height and weight. There are a number of things. And, and we really want to evaluate all of those because it's not just as simple as saying, hey, I'm 30 years old. I'm in perfect health. I can definitely get the best classification. If there is cancer history in your family history or if there are cardiac risks in your family history, especially if there's a premature death, that might not actually be the case. And some companies could affect you as much as putting you into a standard category or a third best category versus the very best. Again, it could be that simple. Chances are you at least want to have a conversation, go into it having selected the company that's going to give you the best opportunity to qualify for the best rates and just get it done right the first time. So yes, it could work. Chances are you should probably give it a little further thought than just saying, I'm going to go with the cheapest company. And just to clarify, so if in that case, the 12 to 24 months, if they chose the company that maybe was $30 more, then after the 24 months, is it as simple as going back to the insurance company and saying, hey, look at me, I'm now 24 months off of nicotine. They reduced the premium there. Like, how does that last piece work? So obviously, anytime you are reducing the cost, increasing the liability on the insurance company standpoint, anything that's basically increasing the risk or reducing the amount of premium you pay an insurance company, they're not just going to, for one, take your word for it and just do it willingly. They, they want an update on your medical history. They want all of that information. So you are going through an adjustment application, which is not that different from the original process of applying for coverage. You're providing a new urine sample, for example, but yes, it, it actually can be that simple. And yes, they will reduce the pricing, assuming that you qualify and you can now attest that it's been 24 months or longer since the last time you used that nicotine or, or tobacco product. That's exactly what they'll do. 
they're getting a new updated picture of your health and your situation. And certainly they're not obligated um, contractually to actually reduce it. But if you are still eligible, if you are still in good health, and if you have now been 24 months nicotine and tobacco free, they'll give it to you. Take it one step further, uh, because you're right that there are a little bit, a few more details really to consider. Some companies will allow you to make an adjustment within 12 months, basically after the first policy anniversary. But there are some companies that won't, and they'll require you to keep the policy for 24 months before you're able to make an adjustment like that. That also is important. So regardless of the underwriting criteria and whether the requirement is that you've been tobacco-free for 24 months or 36 months or 48 months, they actually put a limitation saying we don't allow adjustments in the first 24 months after the effective date. You are forced to wait until that second policy anniversary. So all of those things have to be considered. And in some cases, the absolute cheapest company might say, look, we don't make adjustments for the first two years. Or they might say, we don't give preferred unless you've gone 36 months without using tobacco or nicotine products or 48 months without using them. Whereas the company that might be 30 or $40 more will say, great news, we can adjust after the first policy anniversary and we'll consider you preferred once you've reached 24 months of being tobacco or nicotine free. Yeah, this is so much why I like working with you guys and having you guys on the show and going through this because even as a planner, I don't sell this stuff. So I'm not in the day-to-day in the weeds of these things. And I don't know all the different companies on who offers what and how that works. How is the consumer expected to walk through this? So I appreciate you breaking those pieces down. I appreciate you both the time and effort you've given to financial residency in our communities and helping everyone out with their questions. It's been awesome to have you both on. For anyone that wants to to get connected with you guys, they can check out financialresidency.com slash insurance. But also we'll go, Larry, back to you. Tell them where they can reach out to you and what's going on in, in your little corner of the world. Yeah, so very easy. You can reach me at 516-677-6211. Or you can always send an email. It's long, but it's easy. It's L Keller, L-K-E-L-E-R, at Physician Financial Services, all spelled out, dot com. And be happy to answer any questions. Be happy to review existing policies and give you my thoughts. And Michael, where can they uh, find you and and what you're up to? Of course, Ryan, the easiest phone number is 800-817-4522. Sounds like a big, huge company. It's actually not a very small company, but it makes things easier for call forwarding and everything. Email address is M-R-E-L-V, as in Victor, A-S, at M-R-I-N, like Nancy, C-O.com. We'd be happy to help however we can, reviewing options, answering questions, whatever we can do, we're, we're happy to do it. We enjoy helping people. Like I said, it's also be at financialresidency.com slash insurance. And it's also the link in the description. So if you're in the podcast app right now that you're listening to us on, look at the description, click the link, and you will see these amazing gentlemen and their contact info there. Guys, thanks so much for being a part of the community coming on. Uh, really appreciate it. Always happy to do it. Thanks for what you guys do. Get out there. Have a great day. Thanks, Ryan. We really enjoyed it. All right. Hopefully you guys got a ton of value out of having these two amazing guys with decades of experience on to answer your guys' questions inside our community. I really appreciate their time. I know that you guys probably got a crazy amount of value. And if you've received any value from the show at all, please 
share this with one other physician or a physician family, because together we will help them not only understand their finances, but increase their financial acumen and just be more confident that they're doing the right things to achieve their ideal life. So please remember that this show is for educational purposes only. This is not insurance advice, financial planning advice, tax advice, any other advice that you can think of under the sun. This was three dudes on a podcast trying to help you out, give you some general information. Please reach out to an independent insurance agent like the gentleman that we're on. You can reach out to us at Physician Wealth Services to get a financial plan if that is what you're looking to do, or even physician tax advisors if you are looking for a new CPA. But please, whatever you do, Make sure that you reach out to someone who knows your exact situation and don't take advice from anything that we said on the show as is general in nature. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll see you on Friday. Cheers. Lawrence Keller is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. OSJ 355 Lexington Avenue, 9th floor, New York, 10017-212-541-8800. Securities, products, and advisory services are offered through PAS, member of FINRA SIPC. Financial representative, the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, registered trademark, Guardian, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian Physician Financial Services is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. AR Insurance License Number 1057229, CA Insurance License Number 0C37340. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Physician Financial Services and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. 2020-107336 expires 922.